There's so much health advice out there, lots of different voices and opinions, but who can you trust? Trust the experts, the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them tough, intimate health questions so you get the answers you need. This is the Health Essentials Podcast, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Health Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, Annie Zaleski, and today we're talking about kids and ADHD with pediatric psychologist Michael Manos. Kids living with ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, often have difficulty paying attention to just one thing. They demonstrate symptoms of inattention, distractibility, and hyperactive impulsive behavior. This can pose challenges in school and in social situations, although there are treatments and strategies available. Dr. Manos is here to discuss ADHD symptoms, how to get a diagnosis for your child, and how best to approach treatment. Dr. Manos, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start our conversation by having you tell us a little bit about your work at the Cleveland Clinic. What kind of research and clinical work do you do? I am the uh, clinical director of the ADHD Center for Evaluation and Treatment. We call it ASSET. And we function to diagnose ADHD in both children and adults. And we have a number of different programs that we offer, like the Summer Treatment Program, which is a seven-week all-day sports program for kids with ADHD, where we train particular behaviors and emphasize the use of particular behaviors, as well as work with parents. Also, uh, we conduct a series of uh, groups, for example, organizational skills training group, a social skills training group, an executive functioning skills training group, and the like, and as well as a parent training group that's ongoing throughout the year from the summer treatment program. Our research focuses on the behaviors, the strategies that influence the behavior of kids with ADHD. And also for 25 years, we have been studying and collecting data in a very systematic way on children's titration of medicine. That is when physicians prescribe medicine, stimulant treatment for kids with ADHD, what works and what doesn't work. And we've been collecting this information for 25 years. We now have a database of about 5,000 kids with a thousand variables on each child. We've just contracted with a researcher from Stanford who is uh, evaluating these data and studying them to determine which medicine works best for which kid or what we call phenotyping. What characteristics of the child will predict which medicine to use? Because right now, physicians are required to more or less guess at what medicine to use should medicine be prescribed. So our research is rather wide ranging uh, related to behavioral intervention with kids with ADHD and pharmacological intervention with kids with ADHD. I'm glad you mentioned all of that because I think that's uh, both of those topics that I want to get into later in our conversation. And we are talking about ADHD specifically in kids today. So uh, give us kind of an overview of a definition of what that is and how prevalent ADHD is today in kids. So the question is a very pertinent one. The Centers for Disease Control reports, and this is a few years ago now, about five to six years, seven years, that the prevalence of ADHD in the U.S. is about 11.2%. Other prevalence estimates 
ranged from about 4% to 11%. So a lot of people have ADHD. Worldwide prevalence is um, generated to be between 4 and 7.2%. So there is a very high incidence of ADHD in the world population as well as in the uh, U.S. population. For example, um, there are about 202 203 million children with ADHD in the world. And in the U.S., we have about 6, 6 million kids with ADHD. That's a, that, that seem you know, how does that compare to other disorders? And that seems very high. Yes, it, it is very high. And uh, how does that compare? Well, it compares, typically, it's higher than some of the other conditions. It is, it is the most diagnosed uh, mental health condition in children in the, in the world, actually. So what are the causes then? You know, what are some of the, the common ones? You know, what are, what are doctors finding? ADHD is generally considered to be um, genetic, a genetic occurrence, and that uh, the tendency for ADHD to be diagnosed is probably higher than uh, most other diagnoses in childhood, and it actually is higher than most diagnoses in childhood. It is considered to be a genetic occurrence, though there may be other sources, other uh, causes of ADHD in some children, like lead poisoning, um, very disruptive um, uh, childhood experiences. ADHD is considered to be a genetic condition associated with the availability of dopamine and norepinephrine in particular circuits in the brain. So walk us through, I guess, what kind of an ADHD brain looks like then. You know, is it, are they producing too much dopamine? Is it too little dopamine? What does that sort of look like? And it's not a question of quantity of dopamine or quantity of norepinephrine. It's actually the availability. So you may have heard of the notion of reuptake. So when, for example, a certain circuit uses a neurotransmitter to increase a connectivity, the the neurotransmitter is taken back up into the presynaptic membrane. Uh, and sometimes it's taken back up before it can actually activate a receptor on the opposing neurotransmitter. So we call that reuptake, like serotonin reuptake inhibitors are useful medicines for the treatment of depression. So in ADHD, um, the, the pharmacotherapy or the stimulants used to treat ADHD allows the neurotransmitters to do their job before they're taken back up. And so that's the impact of ADHD. In people with ADHD, the neurotransmitters tend to be taken back up or their reuptake happens sooner than they can activate the receptors on the opposing neurons to activate a particular circuit. That's so interesting. And that, that makes a lot of sense considering, you know, how ADHD kind of manifests in terms of the major symptoms that you tend to see. Yes. So what's very interesting is that most of us don't pay attention to our attention that much. You know, we look at our awareness and something floats into our awareness or we become aware of something. And sometimes we activate our own awareness towards something. So, for example, the two kinds of attention that we use as human beings are called automatic attention and directed attention or effortful attention. Automatic attention is what the brain is activated by just by something occurring in the environment around us. So for example, my office is right here next to the autism school. 
and one of the students from the autism school had just walked by. So my attention automatically noticed that this young man walked by. That's automatic attention. Automatic attention is also activated when we're doing something that is of interest to us. So we were talking before about um, uh, journalism and uh, writing. And people who make a living by being writers are writing stories or articles typically that are of interest to them. And all of us have particular interests. For example, having dinner with a close friend or going to uh, play basketball with a group of friends or seeing a good movie, those all activate automatic attention. You do not have to work hard to use automatic attention. It's, it's automatic, it just occurs. And many of us, if we're lucky, end up um, being in careers that activate automatic attention by and large. Directed attention, on the other hand, is the kind of attention a person uses to do a task that is of low interest. So, for example, a child sitting in the classroom looking out the window at, say, a squirrel in the tree is activating automatic attention. That, that event is activating automatic attention. And then a teacher says, children, pull out your math books and do page 45. So the child hears that, but would rather watch the automatic attention. So typically the teacher will have to give two or maybe even three more um, uh, comments or directives for the child to pull out his book. And finally, the kid will pull out his book. The book doesn't move. It doesn't change. It doesn't climb. It doesn't run. But he has to bring his attention to the book and make sense of the book. That's directed attention or effortful attention. Well, and it seems like then if, if kids have ADHD, like that's more effort. And, and that can be tiring if you have to put in more effort, I would think, too. you know, have to pay attention to, you know, to things that maybe aren't as interesting to you. That's actually very insightful of you, Annie, to make that comment that it tires you out. It actually does tire you out. So consider when you were in school and you had a day, a whole day that you had testing all day long. When you got home, the last thing you wanted to do was to do more academic work or to read something that was of low interest because you wear out directed attention. It, it tends to lose its salience at the end of the day. So it's more difficult to use. So for example, a child comes home from school, throws his shoes and throws his jacket down and runs off to play video games. And the mom or the dad say, son, come back here and put your shoes away and hang your jacket up. And the kid has a tantrum because even a simple task like that using directed attention is unavailable to him because of directed attention depletion. And that makes sense. That makes total sense. They're tired. <laughs> they don't want to deal with it. So what are some other, I guess, ADHD symptoms then? And how else does this sort of manifest in kids? You know, like, you know, obviously a kid who's maybe quiet and distracted and daydreaming is easier to overlook than a kid who's running and jumping or, you know, having a tantrum. Very well said. So the issue of running and jumping is more typical in boys and overactivity and impulsive behavior is easier to see in younger children, which is why uh, some children get diagnosed much earlier than others. And the point you're making is an excellent one in that inattention can often be overlooked because many people who are very, very bright can get through school very easily. They can write their papers at the last minute, for example, or do a big assignment at the last minute and do well in it. Get, get a very good grades in school, but they nevertheless are highly inattentive. They do not have to pay attention as much because they can hear one thing and be able to make sense of it, whereas other people must have it repeated over and over. 
So very bright kids, for example, may have ADHD and be overlooked oftentimes until they even get into college in that the demands of school do not pose them a problem because they master it just fine. And then when they get to college, they realize, whoa, this requires a lot more work than I thought and a lot more planning and organization than is capable, than they're capable of. So um, organizational skills is, uh, are, are very important for uh, children and adults with ADHD uh, because it's not as effective for them. It doesn't come naturally to them. Uh, other characteristics are forgetting things, um, losing things. Uh, sometimes people who are in conversation with another person will look at the other person and wonder whether they're even listening. So sustaining a directed attention of behavior, even in a conversation, may be difficult. Mm -hmm. There are So just to sum, there are nine behaviors consistent with inattention and nine behaviors consistent with hyperactivity impulsivity. In a child, we are looking for six in one or both of those categories. In an adult, we are looking for five. Now, it's not enough that somebody just shows these characteristics because everybody is inattentive from time to time. Everybody drifts off in a conversation. It's when these behaviors become dysfunctional, when they become a problem in living everyday life. That's when we have to look for ADHD and see if there's something we can do about it. I think that's a good point because, you know, uh, in discussing this conversation with a colleague, you know, their question was, you know, maybe someone's just an energetic toddler. You know, when does the line cross between my child might have ADHD and, oh, they're just a three-year-old acting like a three-year-old? Yes, that's actually also very well said. Um, because these are behaviors, the behaviors that we look, we're looking for for ADHD are behaviors that everybody shows at one time or another but it's when they are problematic. We have parents come in all the time and say, well, he's just acting like a boy. Well, what does that actually mean? And how intrusive is this acting like a boy getting to be in this child's life or in other people's lives? Well, I think that's a good point because then, you know, at a certain point, then maybe the line is that, you know, a kid isn't paying attention in school, so their work isn't getting done. Or, you know, their tests, you know, when they do take a test, maybe their mind wanders so they don't finish it in time. Or at home, maybe their room is so messy you can't even walk in it. Or they don't pick up and they don't listen, you know, with, with asking small tasks. So I think, you know, is it fair to say that it's something that maybe builds up over time as well? That you're like, huh, you kind of tend to notice that like this isn't just a one-time thing. You know, maybe a kid just, you know, being cranky and on a bad behavior. But over time, things, you know, kind of stack up. So again, well said. So having a one-time incident is no does not is not ever going to diagnose ADHD. It, the, these are behaviors that are exhibited over time and they are problematic over time. So now what's very interesting is that um, the genetic variance of uh, ADHD has diminished over the years. So um, but these, these variants that describe ADHD have been around for thousands of years. There was a fascinating study conducted by, the, by a person at UC Irvine named Jim Swanson. They followed behavior patterns of uh, uh, indigenous peoples in migration patterns from South America to North America and looked at the genes in each of these. And this went back 20,000 years. And there was a significant 
representation of uh, the ADHD genes that they were looking at in these uh, hunter-gatherer tribes, more or less. Then after the Ice Age, what was very interesting is that these uh, genes tended to be tended to diminish over time. And evolutionary biologists indicate that when something exists at least one percent of the in ex, at least one percent of the population, then it's likely due to the genetic variance associated with natural selection in evolution. So you have to kind of wonder now why in the world would ADHD be selected for in evolution when the world was a very dangerous place? Well, uh, likely the ADHD brain helped survival because the ADHD brain could notice subtle changes and be activated by what occurred in the world around them so that people knew if there was danger that way, they need to go this way. After the ice age, when people settled on farms, a brain that could wait a long time for plants to grow or seasons to change. So the requirements of survival changed. And so natural selection then also started weeding out the ADHD brain. But because there were so many people with ADHD, or so many hunter brains, you might call them, that to replace them with farmer brains that could wait a long time for plants to grow or seasons to change was likely, it certainly was going to take a long time. So the tendency for school tasks to be associated with farmer brains is uh, uh, there's a high correlation between the two. So, I mean, when you think about studying, what is studying? It's paying attention to one thing for a long period of time, like waiting, waiting for something to happen or looking for something. The ADHD brain tends to uh, exploit and engage with the natural world. The farmer brain, the, the non-ADHD, the neurotypical brain, performs well with tasks that are self-selected or directed, as we call directed attention. I like that because, you know, I think especially now that there's a lot of conversation where people are saying, hey, you know, an ADHD brain has a lot of strengths. Like if a kid is really interested in something, they're going to learn about it. They're going to focus on it. They're going to become experts in it. And, you know, as they grow up, that can serve them very well. You know, like there's kids, I know kids who are very interested in roller coasters. And so they have a kind of a scientific brain and they learn about it. And so I, I like that's kind of flipping the script a little bit. It's still, I think it's still necessary to be cautious about uh, glamorizing the ADHD brain because people with ADHD nevertheless still have significant difficulty in managing their behavior in a world that requires sustained, directed attention. I mean, look at what we have to do every year. Everybody has to do their taxes. Now, I'm not quite sure that people enjoy doing their taxes, but they make themselves do it. Some people who do not have as great a control over their own directed attention don't make themselves do it. And so you see the problems that it can cause, and especially in our modern world. So one of the things that comes up sometime, are there also common comorbid or coexisting conditions with ADHD? Oh, yes. One of the common questions that I ask every person who walks in my office seeking a diagnostic assessment is, are you self-critical? And the older a child is or, the, uh, or an adult, the more and longer time they've spent being self-critical. Typically, the tendency to be self-critical is associated with not good enough or something must be wrong with me. Because 
it starts very, very early in school. So just consider a, a very uh, inattentive little boy who's sitting in class and the teacher says, kids, pull out your pencils. You're going to uh, take a spelling test now. Child doesn't hear it. So the teacher has to give constant reminders to the little boy. The little boy is not oblivious to the fact that the teacher has to spend more time uh, giving directions to, sometimes even criticism toward him, as opposed to other students. So what does a child do with that? A child resolves that there must be something wrong with me. How come I can't do it like other kids? So being self-critical is very consistent. And the constant tendency to be disorganized also gives the feeling of being overwhelmed or irritability, being irritable or being agitated. And those emotions often over time can result in a diagnosis of ADHD or even of, or also of anxiety. So comorbid conditions, what we call comorbid conditions like depression or anxiety disorders are very common in ADHD. So, you know, when do these symptoms, uh, you know, I guess start to, you know, typically start in kids then, you know, and are there symptoms that emerge sooner than others? Well, children who are very active um, and hyperactive and impulsive, that shows up very early. And you really can't diagnose ADHD before the age of uh, three years. Some people say four years. So uh, being able to diagnose ADHD requires being able to clearly know what is expected at that developmental level. And then is the child exhibiting behavior that is outside of the norms for that developmental level? So you can diagnose starting at about age three or four. And the oldest person that I've seen was 74 years old. So you can diagnose all the way uh, through the lifespan. You know, how do parents, I guess, for kids seek out a diagnosis then? You know, would you talk to your pediatrician first and get a referral? How does that sort of work? The most common way of parents identifying ADHD in their children is to talk to the pediatrician. Now, the problem is that because of the demands that pediatricians have, the number of people that they must see, the time that a pediatrician can spend with a family is going to be um, maybe 15 to 30 minutes. When we do a diagnosis here in our offices, uh, we spend a minimum of 90 minutes because the diagnostic process has three things associated with it. First are the symptoms there, are the behaviors that represent ADHD there, the six of nine for children, the five of nine for adults. Secondly, are those behaviors a problem or do they just seem to be present from time to time? So the second question, however, is, are those behaviors due to a particular circumstance? Are they due to something else or are they due to ADHD? Because depression can often look like ADHD. Depression can often look like inattentiveness. Anxiety can often look like even impulsive or hyperactive behavior because a person is constantly trying to make up for things and do something. So ruling out alternative causes for the behaviors a child whose parents are constantly at odds with each other and, and actively fighting, for example, can cause a world of disruption in a child whose behavior may be very uh, aberrant in school and the child may not be a rule follower. The, the constant use of punishment in the home, that can result in ADHD behaviors. So you have to rule out alternative causes for why the behaviors are there. And many people, many adults, for example, come in and they think they have ADHD, but um, the number of people who demonstrate anxiety is often very high. 
because their constant concern about getting something done or the constant concern or anxiety about their own safety can often be uh, problematic and look like ADHD when actually it's not ADHD. All of those points, you know, they, they make so much sense, you know, and especially that if you're, you know, you're not paying attention and then you get upset with yourself and then it's, and that snowballs too over time. And then anxiety and, you know, everything sort of builds up. And when you're little, you're, you know, you're trying to figure out what all these things mean too, when you're trying to figure out how to process it. So anxiety might manifest in a different way. So I think that makes, that all makes a lot of sense. Now that's actually, that's actually a very good point in that um, children are very, are very good observers, but they're very poor interpreters. So to see that all the other kids finish their tests sooner than a child than one child does, the child will <clears throat> interpret that to mean, well, I must be dumb, or there must be something wrong here. And when actually the case is <clears throat> that the child is simply taking longer to complete tasks, and, and, and may not be ADHD. It could be um, obsessive compulsive disorder, for example, with the constant repetition of behavior or the constant over-focusing on something. Well, I think, you know, we've reached a point in the conversation where, you know, okay, someone has gotten a diagnosis, then what are the next steps? What is What are the medications and treatments? And you mentioned very early on that that's something that's been studied for many years then. And so what do doctors typically do then? So first of all, uh, getting a diagnosis is the first step. So people can actually re-attribute the concerns that they have, not to themselves as being a bad person, but to themselves as having a particular way that their brain functions. The brain of an ADHD person works differently. Automatic attention is exceptionally strong, and it's much stronger than it is in the neurotypical person. Directed attention, however, on the other hand, is much weaker. And subsequently, as adults, we're supposed to find our way and choose what we're supposed to do and then continue to do what we say we're going to do. The biggest problem with adults is leaving things incomplete. That is starting something and then not finishing it. Now, everybody does that. But when a person does that and it infiltrates their work, their, their occupational work, or it infiltrates problems in managing a, uh, a household, that's when a person may wish to investigate whether ADHD is present. But the brain actually works differently. It functions differently. I, uh, I know I have a number of colleagues who differ with me on this, but many times ADHD, I sometimes, uh, many times I think that ADHD does not need to be considered a mental health disorder as much as it is a functioning of the brain that can be managed effectively. And the decision to use pharmacotherapy, of course, is up to the individual. And if it's a child, then it's up to the parents. Pharmacotherapy can certainly make a huge difference in the child's ability to be able to use directed attention. That's all it does. So when the teacher says, pull out your math books and do page 45, the child can turn away from the squirrel in the tree and pay attention to the book that doesn't move or jump because they can actually use their directed attention as opposed to having it not available to them. You know, does that mean that, you know, that other kids might benefit from, you know, maybe not having medicine or having some behavioral therapy? You know, what is it or could both have medicine and a combination of medicine and behavioral therapy might work better? So it sounds like it's very also tailored to the individual. Again, your comments are very insightful, Annie, because research has demonstrated that the most profound effects, the biggest effect on a child's behavior, even an adult's behavior, has to do 
with using a combined approach of behavioral intervention and medicine. And there have been uh, several studies that have indicated that when you use very good behavioral intervention, you can reduce the, the dosage of medicine given to a child or an adult, for example. So in the adult world, people tend to use coaches, ADHD coaches, to help identify what should be placed in the physical world in order to assist a person to get things done. So for example, um, I always ask a person, what is your organizational strategy? What do you use to organize yourself? And people who tell me, oh, I just remember it, then I, I tell them that the world has gotten far too complex to try and remember things. An organizational system should be something that exists in the external world, that exists in the physical world that you can refer to at any time, not in the brain. The brain is highly unreliable. It's not a good place to put things these days. So developing an effective organizational system is ideal. And I mean, the best thing to do is to have someone who follows you around all day long and says, okay, at this time you have this, at that time you have that. But probably the only person who has that is the president of the United States. Most people, of course, do not. So our organizational system has to work. And in childhood, parents keep track of that for kids. And then as kids advance in grade level, they have to become more and more uh, in charge of it themselves. So they devise their own systems and they study at certain times. A, a very interesting uh, notion along these lines is what's called social scaffolding. We are writing a paper for the uh, Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine on adult ADHD. And that's one of the, the uh, uh, interventions that we recommend adults take advantage of. People have friends and they have family. And this strategy can be burdensome if it's not managed effectively, but many ADHD adults tend to marry somebody who's going to be highly organized or who has a propensity to be able to keep track of things that are going on. That can be a, certainly a benefit. Many people use ADHD coaches to put together a system like reminders on their phone when they have an appointment or uh, some other sorts of strategies that allow a person to pay attention to their responsibilities in the physical world. So as we're looking to wrap up here then, you know, are there any big myths about kids in ADHD that you commonly see or you commonly have to clear up? Well, that, oh, there is one of them, yes. Um, what you mentioned before, children with ADHD often tend to have emotional dysregulation. So they're more prone to tantrums and the like, but not every child does. Uh, back in the, uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s, the definition of ADHD included a, a condition of emotional dysregulation. Then shortly after that, it was taken out of the definition. We thought they were going to put it back in in 2014 when the new DSM, the new uh, Diagnostics and Statistics Manual that has the definitions of mental health disorders in it, but they did not. So some children with ADHD do have emotional dysregulation because how do we manage our emotions? We manage our emotions using directed attention. For example, if somebody says something that is offensive to you, rather than um, yelling at them or knocking them, bumping them or something, we don't. We restrain ourselves, and you restrain yourself by using directed attention. And then you can bring it up at another time when it's safer to have a discussion about something. So emotional dysregulation is not necessarily a characteristic that, is, that defines ADHD. Another uh, characteristic is that um, people generally think people with ADHD have more creativity. 
And in some sense, that is true because children tend to be very observant of their world. And being observant in their world, they tend to make um, associations that many other people may not make. But it is not a general characteristic that every child with ADHD is creative. So there are some senses of ADHD that can be, um, that are generally um, not true, but attributed to children with ADHD. That's so interesting. I mean, I think we're about ready to wrap up here then. Is there anything else you want to add? Uh, you know, there is one thing that I just forgot I wanted to say when I was talking about creativity. ADHD tends to have an exploring sort of manner about it, whereas people who have very strong directed attention have an exploiting manner about how their brain works. So the brain explores the environment, and that's typical for ADHD, and the brain exploits the environment. And I don't say the word exploits in a negative sense. I say the word exploits in that you identify what's present and you put it in its proper place or you use it in its proper way. So people with very strong executive functions tend to exploit the environment or exploit the world around, whereas the ADHD brain, brain is far more um, prone toward exploring the environment. That's so interesting, and that's that's so subtle, too, I think. Yeah, it actually is. Thanks for noticing. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Manos. This has been a really great conversation. My pleasure, Annie. Thank you very much for participating in this whole thing. For more information or to make an appointment with our ADHD Center for Evaluation and Treatment, call 216-448-6310 or visit clevelandclinicchildrens.org slash ADHD. Thank you for listening to Health Essentials, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit clevelandclinic.org slash HEPodcast. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest health tips, news, and information.